Welcome back to New Books Network's African-American Studies channel. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today, we have the opportunity to discuss the highly acclaimed new book, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America, published by Cambridge University Press with its author, Dr. Martha S. Jones. Dr. Jones is the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and Professor of History at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jones. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks. Very good. And um, before we uh, begin talking about Birthright Citizens, can you please uh, tell us a bit about yourself and um, how you uh, attract to this particular book? Oh, sure. Um, you know, before I was a historian, I spent about uh, 10 years as a public interest lawyer in New York City. And I worked in some of the everyday legal trenches of places like housing court and family court. And years went by, I became a historian, but I was still carrying around a lot of the questions that emanated out of the work I had done as a lawyer and as an advocate. And so this book gave me the opportunity, in a sense, to go back to those courthouses, um, to the archives, in my case of the 19th century, and to ask um, what was going on in those everyday scenes of um, a local courthouse like the one I look at in Baltimore City, and uh, beyond the quotidian, um, was there a way in which we could think about local courthouses, trial courts, as places where people were also thinking about rights as the same at the same time that they are also worrying about sort of the materiality of everyday life. And, and I really appreciated um, the, the, the part, you know, I, I really think about Baltimore, you know, you talk about Baltimore City, and I thought that one of the most important parts, because I didn't initially think that Baltimore was going to be the center of your, uh, of your book, but then I think about what's happened not only going back to, you know, like the 1850s, but also obviously in the present day moment, I'm going to post Freddie Gray, uh, Baltimore as well. And so I really thought that that part uh, was a pretty awesome uh, way to focus. Um, And so um, with that as well, uh, would you be able to talk about briefly, because I know that uh, from reading some, uh, some stuff about you that uh, you were actually a lawyer before you became a historian. Is is that true? I was a lawyer before I became a historian. That's right. Yeah, and and so one thing that I thought was very very cool about your book was that I thought that your work as a lawyer probably made you one of the most uh, one of the best people to actually be able to author a book on uh, uh, on rights you know, uh, of African-Americans, um, especially in the antebellum world. And so I really thought that that was uh, uh, an important part that I'm glad I, that I knew about prior to reading the book, because I think that provided myself and our future readers of your book to be able to know uh, a bit about yourself in that way so that that can better inform uh, them reading your book going forward. And believe me, after this interview, y'all, y'all going to buy this book. Believe me. Well, I'm glad it, that came through because um, it's not especially evident, right, that a lawyer, a practitioner, um, has any particular insight into the archive, right? We still need our training 
um, and our mm-hmm. critical capacities as historians, I think, to read what are um, very challenging archives. They're very shard-like. They're very um, uh, slim. Um, they don't offer us much narrative. Um, but I think the thing um, about having been a lawyer um, was that, um, in some sense, I really believed in that archive, right? So even though it was a hard one to access and um, a hard one to make sense of initially, uh, because I had spent time in courthouses, because I had spent time with people, and I knew in the 20th century that there were stories behind those slim records that are left behind, um, it really was part of the drive that kept me pushing to make sense of the material in the state archives and to try and explain um, what it is that African-Americans were doing when they came to the courthouse. Yes, people were coming to do very practical things, right? They're coming to Uh um, try and regain custody of their children. Um, They're looking to be uh, forgiven for their debts and bankruptcy. They're trying to maneuver around black laws to carry a gun or to own a dog, um, to travel, to work, or to visit family. So all those practical things are there. Um, but what I knew from my work as a lawyer is that at the same time, um, people are thinking about big questions. What does it mean to be a citizen? What kind of rights do I enjoy by the law, by a constitution? Um, and so um, I hope that comes through um, my kind of commitment to Uh, discovering how, as a historian, I could capture some of that um, is a great reflection, I think, of who I used to be as a lawyer. And and that is a tremendous way of explaining that, because, you know, like you were saying before, like it's it's at least in in my reading, it it not only is great that I knew that you were a lawyer, but also the readability um, of the text, I think, was one of the most profound aspects of the book. Uh, because a lot of times, you know, one of the things that, uh, uh, that a lot of scholars like yourself and, and others, um, are doing or making their work very much accessible to not only, um, academic folks, uh, but also folks who, uh, can use the, uh, your text who, who might not be, uh, in, in the academic world. So I think that that, that added to the contribution, um, of your work going forward, um, and so would you be able to give us a bit of the structure of the book? Because I thought it was very, very interesting, as especially as someone who who studies like a like black uh, seafaring culture um, and also looking at, um, you know, the different ways that African-Americans in, in early America leading up to the Civil War kind of thought about uh, rights and, and and such like that. So would you be able to give us a, a brief breakdown of how you structure uh, the text? Yeah. So one of the um, things about this book is that it ends um, in the early years of Reconstruction, uh, which is a place where many people would begin to tell the story Mm -hmm. of Mm African-Americans in citizenship because it is the era of the 14th Amendment and the constitutionalization of birthright citizenship. But very quickly, what happened to me is as I began to look in an everyday sense at what African-Americans were doing, um, I could begin to see that there was a much longer and older story, if you will, a chapter, a long chapter that really precedes Reconstruction um, that we knew very little about. 
Um, I initially thought I was going to write about the 1850s. I thought I was going to write about a decade before Mm -hmm. um, and sort of the warm up right to reconstruction um, and the 14th amendment. But as is often the case, um, our archives have a different idea about where the story begins. And, and when I discovered, um, for example, um, that some of the people I was writing about in the 1850s had stories that went back to the 1820s and to the 1830s, um, were part of the early African-American or what we sometimes call the colored convention movement, or they were connected with Freedom's Journal, the first African-American newspaper. And once I began to discover my characters and their long stories, I realized I was going to have to go back in time um, and really explain not only the intensity of the 1850s, and that is an intense period for debates about African-Americans and citizenship, but that, in fact, I was going to have to explain how they became so sophisticated over time, such that when things really heated up in the 1850s, folks in Baltimore were able to respond in an organized way, in a substantive way, but also with a lot of savvy about law and about the Constitution. And the answer to that turns out to be um, back in the 1820s um, with the debates and the kind of education they get in a in the newspaper like Freedom's Journal, um, which right up front says in its uh, mission um, that it is going to um, be an instrument for thinking about law, for thinking about rights, for thinking about the Constitution. Um, and so that was the story I wound up telling is about these early chapters in the 1820s and then coming through all the way to Reconstruction. And and I think that I, I love how you connected how most folks who might have done this work would have begun in the Reconstruction era because, you know, that just seems just natural, right? But I think uh, as well, the main contribution um, I think that you talk about is how African-Americans had been thinking about birthright citizenship. Um, a lot of, obviously your, your, obviously, your book centers in Baltimore. And so the activists and folks there they were thinking about that literally a generation or two even beforehand. Um, and as someone who in particular is a colored conventions project scholar at the University of Delaware, when you bring up the colored conventions uh, movement, I was like, yes, yes, yes. That's so, so true. Uh, because it was such an, an, an instructive uh, movement um, that, that goes, you know, even before the popular abolitionist movement and it goes even further past it as well. Um, and how African-Americans, you know, thought of themselves as citizens and, and the world that they wanted to bring about. Well, and one of the things I didn't know until I started this book was that there were Black Baltimoreans like Hezekiah Grice, who are right there at the beginning of the convention movement in the 1820s, coming into the early 1830s. So I thought I was someone who was a really good student of the convention movement, but it turns out, um, and your project makes it possible for so many of us to really um, teach ourselves um, a new Uh, chapter in these new chapters of the convention movement and the ways in which um, folks in Baltimore um, 
still in the 20s and the 30s are very actively connected to the free black communities that we know somewhat more about in Philadelphia, in New York, and in Boston. And that will change for Baltimoreans. They will become more isolated um, as time goes on. But in those early decades of the 19th century, they're right in the mix. Um, and, um, And that's really important then in Baltimore, where they bring the agenda of the conventions. They bring what they learn in the conventions back to Baltimore. Um, to try and see if they can't actually get some traction on their claims to being citizens in that local context. Correct. And and that's why um, the way that the book is structured, I think, is very important because it, it starts in an earlier period and goes much, much further. Um, and so would you be also be able to highlight some of, you know, you talked about um, uh, uh, Hezekiah Grice and, and other folks, and would you be able to tell us a bit about um, some of, because I, I thought that one of the one of the more important parts of the book too was highlighting about how when people think about themselves as citizens, a lot of times it has to deal with the institutions that they build uh, within you know the physical uh, uh, landscape of a city like Baltimore. So, would you be able to give us a bit of a breakdown about how uh, uh, Black Baltimoreans how they really built institutions that brought about their understandings of themselves as birthright citizens? Absolutely. Um, I was somebody who had written a lot about African-American churches earlier in my work, Black Methodist churches, Black Baptist churches, and Baltimore is not exceptional um, in the early 19th century in that you have this um, springing up and this proliferation of Black Methodist and Baptist congregations um, across the city. Well, that's an important story because um, these are important sites of um, spiritual sustenance and organization. They're important because we know churches to be at the center of of African-American political culture. Um, But again, one of the things that I learned in this book was the incredible degree to which founding, purchasing, owning, operating a church is a legal project. Um, And in Baltimore, we have um, African-American men early in the 19th century, uh, many of them who aren't able even to sign their names, um, who are working with lawyers and justices of the peace and are first and foremost incorporating their churches, right? And going through the, the very elaborate and very detailed process of establishing the legal foundation of their individual churches. Um, and then as time goes on, um, these are institutions that are going to face a whole series of challenges, some of them from the outside, Um, People um, who hold mortgages and indentures um, are going to attempt to and sometimes succeed at seizing the property of the church. But church leaders will have to become, again, legally savvy in order to defend against those kinds of um, interferences with the church. And then inside the church, among Black congregants, um, there are also um, disputes that arise um, who should make decisions about the church, who controls church money, um, who is um, 
uh, going to make decisions about the style of worship, right, and the and the um, the rhythm of the rituals, and those questions too um, are governed by church law inside, um, but oftentimes spill out into the city courthouse. And so we see uh, congregants, leaders, whole congregations sometimes um, in the city courthouse exercising a kind of legal personhood, if you will, um, that is, again, essential to, um, I think, the way we have to understand African-American religious culture um, in this period. So these are folks who turn out to be very sophisticated. Um, They don't always win. Right? That law is not, and even legal savvy is not a guarantee um, that justice always prevails. Um, but we certainly see the way in which they're able to navigate the courthouse, to understand the law, to use lawyers when they need them, and to make sure that their churches continue, um, because those churches are in part an expression of a kind of permanence, of a kind of belonging. Um, even before uh, the 14th Amendment and birthright citizenship, the capacity to found and maintain and protect a church institution in a city like Baltimore is a powerful claim that you belong. And, and when you talk about the politics of belonging, um, there there's so many different ways that African-Americans have really made that their own. Um, but the strongest one was always through the church. And and I remember there was a particular passage where you make that very, very uh, strongly known that, you know, the, the, the black church, you know, with, with flaws and all has been the institution that has, you know, if you look at most local histories of, of black communities, what's the first institution that's always, you know, built? It's the, it's the church. Um, and, and so um, especially with, being so close to uh, Philadelphia too, and and the AME uh, um, denomination there too, um, and and I think it was also another cool part was how you showed how the um, how uh, uh, churches would construct their kind of like their tribunals and such like that. I think that was one of the one of the cool parts about learning that is that they framed it within the confines of the legal culture that African Americans were uh, developing alongside uh, of, uh, of white folks in the, in the city of uh, Baltimore as well. Um, and I think that another part, if you don't mind uh, me asking about as well, is how you spoke about um, uh, black sailing uh, about Baltimore, because Baltimore's a port city. It, it's, you mm-hmm. know, it's at, the, um, it's at the convergence really of uh, North, South, and also the Atlantic world as well. And so could you talk about a, a bit of, of how you talked about the, um, the the black sailing culture that also is very strongly in, in involved in, in the movements going on in Baltimore? Absolutely. Um, early in this project, my colleague, uh, Julia Scott, um, said to mm. me in a, in a somewhat um, provocative way that, uh, did I know that Baltimore was the northernmost port of the Caribbean? And um, when he told me that the, the first time I heard that, I didn't really know what he meant, but I knew it meant I had to do some homework and I really needed to appreciate that while Baltimore has long been thought of as the middle ground between North and South, that 
especially for thinking about rights, for thinking about citizenship, understanding Baltimore, as you said, as a port city, um, as a place where uh, people are coming and going, um, bringing themselves, but really bringing a whole range of ideas um, from throughout the Americas about who former slaves should be, who black folks should be, right, is um, an essential part of this story. And I was really lucky because one of my characters, really my principal character, uh, George Hackett, um, was someone who um, from time to time people would refer to him as the captain. And um, there were um, just brief references to his having served in the Navy. And I began to pull on that thread and um, luckily uh, wrote to a naval historian who checked the uh, rosters um, of the USS Constitution, which is where Hackett was said to have served. And within 15 minutes, he wrote me back to say, absolutely. And here's where he signed up and when, and here's where he um, left the Navy. And this opened up um, a way for me to really explore in a very fine-grained way what it was like for a free Black man from Baltimore to become the steward to a naval commodore in the 1830s and wind up aboard ship, um, not just any ship, but old Ironsides, um, for nearly two years, traveling from Veracruz in Mexico to Havana in Cuba, to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, and around the tip of South America and up the West Coast. Um, what was important was that um, there was a lot of law going on, it turns out, particularly um, in the quarters and in the orbit of the Commodore. Um, everything from minor infractions, right, to major breaches of naval law get basically tried in front of a tribunal that is convened aboard ship. And Hackett is a witness to this. He's visiting port wow. cities. He's visiting port cities where everywhere in the Americas, any major port city is just like Baltimore, trying to figure out how to define, how to situate, how to regard former slaves, because in Veracruz, in Havana, especially in Rio de Janeiro, there are thousands of former slaves, free people of color, um, who are um, also uh, making claims about rights, trying to define freedom, defining themselves as citizens, or at least claiming that. And so I think the other thing that Hackett uh, represents for us is the ways in which in a city like Baltimore, free African-Americans are not just measuring themselves and their status by their immediate surroundings. Uh, they're not even just measuring themselves by other cities or other locales in the U.S. Um, they really are studying uh, the Americas, and they understand that there is a major change afoot. Um, and we know this sort of as historians because we talk about this period in two ways, right? And on the one hand, it's the um, 
era um, of slavery, right? Uh, but it's also the era of emancipation. And that's not only true in Baltimore or Philadelphia or New York or Charleston or New Orleans. Um, that is also true in Havana, in Veracruz, in Rio. Um, and it's, through, it's true throughout the Americas. So Hackett really permits us to see that. And then the last thing about Hackett that I think is so remarkable is that despite having seen the world, um, despite disembarking in Massachusetts, uh, where he could have folded himself right into what was, uh, you know, the exciting and really powerful col- uh, culture of abolitionism, he comes home, right? He comes back to Baltimore and he spends the rest of his life um, steadily and consistently insisting that he and people like him are people with rights. Sometimes that happens in an everyday way. Sometimes it happens in big ways. Um, but he comes back and he really represents another quality um, that I now associate with Baltimore City in this period, um, which is that people do have the option of leaving, of relocating, of coming north, especially free people. And they don't. Um, many, many of them remain and kind of uh, put down their stakes and um, fight the good fight in Baltimore City. Um, and that, to me, was a story really worth telling. And and let me tell y'all, uh, New Books Network's uh, African American Studies channel folks, she did she did that she did that job as someone who read that book uh, uh, months ago and recently re- read it again. Uh, yeah, she 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 definitely, as my mom would say, when it comes to people who who cook real well, she put a foot in it. And when I <laughs> the it is the the the, the book now, um, and so I think that. Um, Hackett is to me one of my favorite figures uh as far as far as the individual but I thought that um early in your book to go a little bit um further back um one of my favorite chapters of yours was actually the second one um threats of removal colonization emigration and the borders of belonging um because you know some of the work that I've written on recently have have been wrapped around the thought of um, how do African Americans in, in in an era where colonization is actually a thing that could actually happen? There are people from Baltimore who are venturing off. You know, who you have folks uh, emissaries from Haiti and 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 you know you have folks like Marianne Shad Carey and others who are moving up to Canada, uh, not far from this period. And it's like you know I, the question that always comes back comes back to me. And, and in light of you know recent things that went on recently in Pittsburgh with uh, Antoine Rose and, you know, mm. uh, the, the, the names just, you know, just keep on piling up. Why do people want to stay here? Right. Yeah. Why, yeah. I think that's and the that's central a, question, right? Yeah. You know, and that's a live question in Baltimore, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Baltimore, again, the port city from which those ships are headed to Liberia, right? Baltimoreans witness people, coming through their city and preparing to make those really um, uncertain, right, but very powerful journeys to places like Liberia, to Haiti, to Trinidad. Um, So it is a live question. And of course, there are folks who don't stay, right? And they are lured away in part by what? 
the promise of citizenship, right? Mm -hmm. That colonization advocates say, listen, it's not going to happen for you here, right? You know what rights are, you know what they might look like, and you know they're not going to happen in the United States. They're certainly not going to happen in a city like Baltimore. And so colonization projects are your safest bet. And they show, right, the the uh, Liberia in Maryland Constitution is written in Baltimore, and it is written, in a sense, um, directly against um, the black laws and the ways in which um, those laws are um, depriving black Baltimoreans of um, those things that they will term rights. Um, but your question was why people stay. Um, and it's important to remember not everyone does. And part of what I discovered in the archives is the evidence of people who leave for a time and come back. Right? It turns out that um, you know, for some people, Trinidad, for example, is not the um, ideal or the paradise that they had been led to believe it was. Um, others take a long time to come back. Hezekiah Grice comes back um, only with the Civil War, um, only when he can um, secure a U.S. passport finally as a citizen. So it takes some people a long time to come back. Um, but I think other people stay, of course, because they are um, deeply embedded in networks of family, um, of work, of church, of community. Um, it isn't so easy or evident to imagine um, the kind of dislocation that comes with um, participating in a colonization project. But I think the other reason that people stay in Baltimore is that it is true that in day-to-day -day terms, they are really able to ring out of the courthouse um, things that look like, and I would argue, feel like rights, even as they are not regarded as citizens. And so they are able to uh, present themselves in the local courthouse and get a travel permit and leave the state and return when they're ready to return. Um, they are able to get gun permits and dog permits um, and to uh, protect their families and their communities, but also to hunt in the environs around Baltimore City. Um, they are able to challenge um, apprenticeship arrangements um, I think with less success than other things, but they have access to the court, to the writ of habeas corpus, um, and use that to insist on justice around um, the custody and the care, particularly of children. Um, they are even able to uh, file for debt relief, which means they can become part of the um, associational economy in Baltimore, try their hands at modest entrepreneurship even, and if things don't go well, and oftentimes they don't, um, they're able to file for bankruptcy and have their debts forgiven like white debtors do. Um, so what I think people stay um, because of all sorts of ties to the place, but also because Baltimore turns out to be a place with the largest free black community um, in the United States um, with a judiciary and a cadre of lawyers um, who believe black people should have rights, even if they might not be citizens equal to white men. 
Um, and this is enough, right? It's not enough, right? It's not sufficient, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. these are folks who are going to continue to insist and to push um, all the way through, through Reconstruction um, toward very robust and um, equal rights. Um, but in this interim period um, where there is no um, paradise for free people of color, there really is no ideal place to be um, in the early decades of the 19th century, um, Baltimore turns out to be a place where uh, folks can um, ring out um, a small um, a small bundle of rights that mm-hmm. make uh, that are meaningful in their everyday lives and are linked to visions of full citizenship um, and t- to visions of equal rights. And I think as well when. When you wrote in your book that Baltimore had the largest free black population, that to me was so astounding because that's just so paradoxical because Baltimore is a part of not only the United States, but more importantly, it's a part of the the state of Maryland, a slave state. And yet the largest free black population was in a, you know, was was in a major city in a slave state. So I, I literally had to reread that just to make sure that my eyes, that I wasn't, for one, being really tired when I read that and I overlooked it or that I just read it wrong. But in fact, no, Adam McNeil, Dr. Martha Jones is on it. And she said it, it or Baltimore was a large, had the largest black, uh, free black population. And to see, like I said, it was just so astounding because it just seems paradoxical and or like shouldn't happen. But then again, the way American history works, it definitely is not a, it's definitely not even or sequential to, to yeah. how you think it should be. Well, you know, I think uh, many people, um, you know, if we were in, uh, I don't know, prelim exams or comps, um, mm-hmm. and I asked you about the largest population of free people of color in the United States before the Civil War, you'd say Philadelphia. Exactly. Or some folks might say some folks might say New Orleans and those places right occupy a very important place in um, the overall history of this period. Um, so I don't mean to suggest they should be overlooked, but Baltimore is the largest. Um, and it is, as you say, in a slave state. And that's what drew me there, because I really wanted to, in a sense, try and discover what the history, um, the pre-Reconstruction history would look like in a place where you could sort of slow things down and look at um, the transition from slavery to freedom in slow motion in a city like Baltimore. Um, Baltimore um, doesn't have the capacity, frankly, to um, uh, be as self-conscious or as self-promoting about its own history as Black Philadelphia or Black New Orleans um, mm-hmm. um, is able to. Uh, Black Baltimoreans are um, are poor. Um, they are uh, vastly disproportionately laborers. Um, they are not property owning people. Um, they are not elites in the way that um, that term somehow sometimes comes to characterize people or communities in a city like New Orleans or Philadelphia. And in that way, um, you know, their history is harder to discover, though I'm certainly not the first 
um, nor will I be the last to write about Black Baltimore, um, wonderful people like Betty Collier Thomas and Christopher Phillips and others have written about Black Baltimore before me, um, Seth Rockman. Um, so, mm-hmm. um, but it means it's a different, um, it has a different texture um, and it is a hard scrabble story, right? Because these are folks, you know, who um, are not, um, who are don't have a philanthropic class or a capital class of African Americans to, for example, sustain churches. Um, that's really happening um, by way of everyday folks um, whose lives are very precarious, um, but are deeply committed not only to the city and their communities, but to this notion that they should be rights-bearing people. Um, so I find Baltimore, it won't surprise you, a deeply compelling place um, precisely um, for that reason, um, because um, this is not a, um, an elite story of, you know, folks um, uh, with a tr- privilege um, to um, either be educated or to have access um, to um, important circles of, of law or politics. Um, but we find out that even folks, right, without a kind of elite access um, to law and politics or to education, even those folks are thinking hard about rights and are using the things they have available to them um, to engage in struggles that are companions to the struggles that are going on in the same period in Philadelphia and in New Orleans um, and in other communities like them. And and you spoke about the precarious nature of Black life. And I think the precarious nature of Black life can be embodied almost no better than the story of Dred Scott. Um, mm-hmm. Because when I read your book and realized that Baltimore was the uh, central city uh, uh, that you speak of in, in your story, I instantly thought about Supreme Court Justice Roger Tannen. And I thought of how he was like the, um, he was like that person or that figure that was hovering over the text throughout the entirety. Now, obviously, that's being presentist because obviously back in 1830 and 1840, they didn't know that Roger Tane would be infamous in this particular way. But as someone who's reading the book, you know, you have you know the particular history to, to foreground you. But with that being said, um, Roger Taney was the person who was oh, like hovering over. And so when I get to your final chapter, uh, when you talk about, you know, the, the Dred Scott decision and how, you know, not only the um, the the Supreme Court obviously would have ruled, but how states throughout the United States at the time and individual citizens how they um, interacted with that particular ruling, and I thought that that mm-hmm. was very profound. So, um, in, in the last bit that we have you here, would you be able to to speak about that that final uh, por- portion of the text too, if you don't mind? Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, This book was started um, very much to try and um, overturn our ideas about Dred Scott. Um, And in two important ways. Um, One was to try and um, 
redirect our attention away from the Supreme Court, which is really not where uh, where it's at when it comes to race and rights before the Civil War. Right? Race and rights are really playing out at the state level in state courts. And I wanted this book to really reorient readers away from the Supreme Court and to appreciate that much of the action that we're interested in, those of us who are particularly interested in African-Americans, um, that the action really is at the state level. And so I hope um, that I persuaded you that while Dred Scott is important, um, it's really only one um, chapter, if you will, in a much mm -hmm. more complicated story. Um, and it turns out in a city like Baltimore, Dred Scott doesn't have a lot of influence because mm. federal courts are not the places where, uh, right, remember, Dred Scott says Scott is not a citizen, and so he doesn't have access to federal courts. It doesn't say anything about state courts, and there folks in go. Baltimore know that, and they use the state courts, just as they had been doing before 1857, after 1857. And so this is important, that if we want to know where, what they're about and what they're doing, um, we have to um, turn away a bit from Dred Scott um, and appreciate and focus on where they are and where they're making their stand. So that's one thing. The other thing about Dred Scott is that I I've read the decision as many times as probably anybody. I'm not sure, but, you know, maybe as many times as anybody. And one of the things that began to come through for me was how much um, Tawny was thinking about Maryland and about Baltimore. He was thinking about a specific place, not just any place. He was thinking about the place he knew, his hometown, which was Baltimore, when he uh, drafted the decision in Dred Scott. And I really wanted to allow readers who were interested in the Supreme Court and in Tawney to appreciate and to see what it was that Tawney knew because he lived in Baltimore, because he was engaged with free people of color in Baltimore in a day-to-day -day way, in a legal day-to-day -day way. Um, we understand Dred Scott, I think, a bit differently. Um, which is that it certainly is not a ruling built on abstract ideas about citizenship. Um, it is a decision built on the kinds of tensions um, that are present in a city like Baltimore with 25,000 free people of color, many of whom are clamming, clamoring for rights. Um, Dred Scott is an attempt, I think not a successful one, but an attempt by Tawney um, to really regulate that scene um, and to render the people he knows very well um, less potent, if not impotent, um, when it comes to rights. So um, I wanted to um, really uh, take on Tawny in a new way um, and to understand him in a new way. And um, so I hope that... Um, I hope that um, readers will appreciate um, Dred Scott in a, in a different sense by um, seeing the ways in which the issues in Dred Scott are actually playing out on the ground every day in Baltimore. And, and you definitely proved that in your text. And I thought that one of the, one of the areas that really, that made me think like, oh my gosh, there was a part in that chapter, I believe, where you spoke even about a court in Mississippi a state court in Mississippi that um, 
oh, I wish I had the, the part in front of me, but um, it spoke about how uh, though that they recognize the, the Dred Scott decision nationally, um, that in the state of Mississippi, that there was a little sort of like a bit of wiggle room. I'm trying to find it as I, as I cycle through the text. But overall, your, your mention of how state um, how state courts were the areas where black rights were really uh, uh, not necessarily formalized, but that's where the where, where black folks could go to 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 to, to gain mobility um, in, in, in the legal sense, I thought was very much profound. Um, yeah. Well, there are two things there, right? One is that um, what I learned in doing this research and reading Roger Tawney's papers is how disappointed Tawney is after Dred Scott, because oh, wow. lo- lower courts really don't defer. They don't adopt his reasoning. They don't really give Dred Scott the force of law that he aspired for it to have. So Tawney is disappointed is one thing. But Back in Maryland, um, the year after Dred Scott, in 1858, the state high court, the Court of Appeals, has an opportunity uh, in a case involving litigants who are free people of color. The state has the opportunity to, in an, to in essence, um, adopt a Dred Scott-like uh, condition in Maryland. The argument is made before the high court that Maryland should do as Tawney had done in Dred Scott and declare that free people of color have no rights, including no right to sue in the state courts. And what's fascinating in this case, which is Hughes versus Jackson, is that the Maryland high court says, no, no way. We're not about to... um, deem free people of color in the state of Maryland as people without rights. Why? Not because the high court in Maryland is a, you know, forward-looking racial egalitarian institution. It is not. Mm -hmm. But because there are so many free people of color in the state of Maryland, in the state there's 75,000 free people of color, and the court says, as long as these folks are in the state of Maryland, We have to give them the avenue for protecting their property, their wages, their persons, their families. Um, If we don't, we'll be run over by people who are essentially outlaws, right? That as long as free people of color are in this state, they might not be citizens equal to white men, but they have the right to sue and to be sued, right? To testify in their own interests and to protect themselves inside the courthouse, the way in which white Marylanders do. And this is a breach, right, for Tawny, right? This is a break with Tawny and Tawny's logic in his home state. Um, Even in Maryland, the high court is not willing to follow Dred Scott in a general way and instead um, gives free people of color the right to come into the courthouse um, in ways that Tawny has tried to deprive them of. And and I just I I just am so happy you characterize it that way, um, because what it almost sounds like is that you know he he was you know like you say he was bro- in, in part brokenhearted that he thought that he would have the final word, uh, or at least how it seems that he would have the final word on this question: open shut case, 
Dred Scott solidified nationally, no Negro citizenship, you know, full stop. But then it's like, not so fast, my friend. You know, it's it's, it's not, and you know, obviously not to say, like you said, that they're, that the uh, courts, uh, the state courts were uh, uh, anti, anti anti-racist, but you know, they, they, there was something, there was another level. Uh, There was another layer that, uh, uh, that allowed for African-Americans to continuously agitate, agitate, agitate on behalf of themselves effectively. Um, And I think that um, this is why, you know, in part your book is so uh, highly acclaimed is that the analysis is, 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 is tremendous. And I think a lot of people, when they read this book, that they will be able to glean so much um, about not only the past, but also about our contemporary selves um, as African-Americans and our allies and other groups continuously vie for what it means to be citizens. Um, Because one thing I've also gotten from your book is that nothing is going to be given. We've all, you know, African-Americans, you know, have always had to uh, uh, agitate on behalf of themselves because, no one is hovering over there trying to to help them. They effectively have to, you know, not in a bootstraps kind of way, you know, pick yourself up from there. But that African-Americans have always been pushing for what it means to be, you know, not necessarily an American in the patriotic sense uh, or the performative sense, but that they had to perform rights, as some of your text even talks about, too. Because at the end of the day, they perceived themselves that they were born in the United States. And no matter what the laws say, that they are citizens nevertheless. Yeah. I think that's, um, for me, one of the most important takeaways in an, in a moment, right, in 2018, where we are in the midst of a live debate about the nature of citizenship in this country, mm-hmm. um, where I think we can anticipate that we are going to be in that debate um, for some time to come. Um, we need to equip ourselves and um, understand the deep history of a concept like birthright citizenship. We need to understand why Black Americans come to discover, define, um, and advocate for that as the definition of citizenship for themselves, but for all Americans, right? For Mm -hmm. all Americans. Um, Because they understand the precarity mm-hmm. of life lived without a clear, accessible, and unequivocal um, definition of national citizenship. And so um, today, as we, as some people do, right, um, call for um, the Uh, repeal of the 14th Amendment um, or its uh, um, amendment in some way to Mm -hmm. uh, do away with birthright citizenship, Um, I hope people will at least first, before they think about that question in our own time, appreciate how harrowing it was for Black Americans to live across many, many decades, free people, family members, community members, institution builders, laborers, across the board, building the United States, um, and how harrowing it was to do that without 
a sure claim to belonging um, without um, confidence that you could not be exiled or removed or banished from the country. Um, that is the origin of birthright citizenship for African Americans. And it, it seems to me it has a profound um, relevance um, and sheds light on today um, other Americans who are also facing um, those who doubt that they belong, who doubt that they are citizens, who discount um, their years in this country, their labors in this country, their, comp cons their contributions to the prosperity of this country. Um, no two stories in history are the same, right? We know that. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I think um, when we appreciate how harrowing it was for free African-Americans to live with this precarity for so very long, um, it helps us think about um, what is um, humane, what is correct, what is necessary in our own time, um, or at least it informs that debate, I hope. And it surely does, because as we see the scenes on the border of uh, families yeah. and, and, and being separated and, and literally being sent thousands of miles away from each other um, and, and PTSD, you know, probably ensuing afterwards, um, you know, one thing that I always came back to is this particular text and, and a lot of the different stories that you bring up and your last statement um you know, uh, equivocates that as 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 great as uh, as portions of your book does uh, as as well. Um, and so, with that being said, Doctor Jones, um, would you be able to tell us um, anything else that you're working on, or anything else that you'd like to uh, let folks know about uh, that that you're working on it for the for the future um, after this uh, sure. text, which is being published yeah. very soon, y'all. Friday, Friday, twenty uh, eighth of June, the twenty eighth yeah, of June, the twenty eighth of June. Yeah. Yeah, really excited. And so thank you for that. Um, yep. I'm, I'm working on a biography of Roger Tawney. Ooh. And um, uh, Tawney was a, a, a figure in this book, in Birthright Citizenship. Um, but, in, uh, but I wrote about him only some. Right? He was a, um, a minor character, frankly, as contrasted with someone like George Hackett and the other um, African-American activists who are at the center of this book. But in writing and researching the book, I spent a lot of time in Roger Tawney's papers. And um, Tawney lives a long life, um, uh, born in the 18th century and lives until um, 1864, um, really lives through um, many, many critical chapters. And I began to understand Tawny's life as really um, a template for understanding the history of American racism. Um, I, like so many people, have been deeply influenced by Ibram Kendi's book um, and um, his history, his sweeping history of mm. American racism, and um, thought that um, Tawny's story really needs to be told and told from the perspective of African-Americans. Mm. So one of the things I've been able to do is to recover um, the lives of a number of African-American figures who were 
themselves closely associated with Tawny across Tawny's lifetime. And so it's a book that really looks at um, everything from early anti-slavery thought and the kind of um, ambivalent manumission that Tawny participates in, as do many Americans in the wake of the American uh, Revolution and the Constitution, um, comes importantly up through colonization, which I really see as a key, as a critical institution for the um, seeming permanent uh, place of racism in American law and politics. And Tawny, um, his brother, uh, Octavius, they are both important colonization advocates. Um, and then, of course, there is Tawny's role um, in courthouses, both local courthouses um, and in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and um, my view, since we're talking African-American history mm-hmm. in particular, is that this is one of the um, the future, uh, major future threads for our field, is to come back to major subjects, but also major characters in U.S. history mm-hmm. and retell them um, from the vantage point of African-Americans. This is something we say all the time, right? Black history is American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I really mean it. And I don't think you can understand Roger Tawney, his life and the consequences of a life lived um, as he did live, um, if you don't tell it from the perspective of Black Americans. Um, So um, I'm just beginning this work, um, and I'm very excited um, to be doing it um, because um, I think it's important that we appreciate the role that somebody like Tawny plays in bequeathing to us a kind of racism that goes far beyond slavery um, and has a a lasting influence, um, I would argue, until today. And and that is tremendous, and I'm I'm very glad that you mentioned that uh that notion that uh that African American history is is American history. And I remember uh hearing about uh, John Hope, Dr. John Hope Franklin, the late John Hope Franklin, that being something that he was very uh very pushy about uh, 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 telling folks. And so um, I definitely appreciate uh, hearing about that. And uh, w- whenever that uh, whenever that work is finished and is ready to be published, like. Uh, birthright citizen, uh, like birthright citizens, is about to on the twenty eighth of June. That we would definitely love to have you back on uh, the New Books Network's African American Studies channel to be able to speak a bit more about that in depth. Because I, I, I already know based upon your other work that it's going to be a game changer, just like Birthright Citizens is. Well, I thank you very much for that. Very good. And so once again, folks, we have had the amazing opportunity to have Dr. Martha S. Jones, who is the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and Professor of History at Johns Hopkins University, to speak today about her phenomenal book, which is soon to be published on June 28th, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America, published by Cambridge University Press. And so going forward, folks, I hope you have a phenomenal day and make sure to go publish or not to go publish. It's already been published, but to go purchase rather this particular book. Thank you all so much and talk to you very soon.